This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Wale Oyinkami is the founder and CEO of Dare Win, an amazing agency at the intersection of content creation, social media, and advertising in France. They create engaging, creative entertainment content for the likes of Netflix, Spotify, and PlayStation. You may have heard of them. They're now part of the Media Monks family, joining forces with none other than Sir Martin Sorrell himself. He's one of only a handful of Black founders of agencies out there, and he's got one of the best classic entrepreneurial stories out there. It's a story of pure hustle, grit, and just perseverance. If you are even remotely interested in media, communications, entrepreneurship, and just hustle, then you will find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Wale Oyinkami. Wale Badamosi Oyinkami is the founder and president of Darewin, the international award-winning group offering communications and consulting services to entertainment and content brands. Clients include the likes of Netflix, Spotify, PlayStation, Bacardi Group, Google, YouTube, BMW, just go down the list of the biggest companies in the world. They have recently merged with Sir Martin Sorrell's Media Monks in 2020. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Wale, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Thank you very much, Nathan, for having me. I'm uh, really excited to be here. I'm super excited to have you on the show. Just an amazing history and background. You're one of the most exciting agencies around today. You've merged with Media Monks in 2020. We'll talk about that a little bit later. You're at the intersection of content creation, social media, and advertising. You started in 2011, but actually you studied applied maths at university. How do you go from studying maths to starting Dare Win and where you are today? It's an interesting story. Um, so one of my really good mates uh, took a form to uh, a university about applied maths. I didn't have any passion growing up. Like I wasn't into music. I wasn't into music like everyone else, but I wasn't like a musician. I wasn't like a, a designer. I didn't have anything specific I was really passionate about. So I just followed my mate like, yeah, let's do some maths. And I was like, not too bad at calculating. So I was like, okay, why not? And I ended up in a, in a interestingly... Uh, good university in Paris. And when I, on the first day I, I went there, I uh, discovered there was like a video club that used to produce content for the university and from students. And I just fell in love. It was love at first sight. I was like, these guys are making entertainment. That's funny. That's great. They're editing, they're shooting, they're writing. And I can be part of that group of people. And I just fell in love on that day with entertainment. Mm. So that took me from applied math to marketing because marketing was the closest thing to entertainment and to content creation that uh, we, I could study at university. And from there, I moved into the entertainment field and I worked uh, as a TV creative uh, for a couple of years. And I really felt that that was what I wanted to, to do for the rest of my life until I fell in love again a couple of years later with the digital. And when I realized the power of digital, so that must have been like back in 2010, the power of digital and social media, I felt that the frustration I had in the TV industry that's very traditional, where you need to, like, to convince like 25 people if you want to have a, an idea on air, that that was going to be completely abolished by the digital era. 
And I felt that I wanted to be at the intersection of two of the things I was passionate about, entertainment and telling stories, and digital media. So I actually decided to quit and to start uh, from the bottom and uh, applied for a community manager job at an advertised agency. And even though there was a, a really huge uh, pay cut, uh, I accepted to start all over from the bottom because I felt that I needed to learn. So I was uh, 28 or 27 back then, but I did realize that I had a lot of things to learn in the digital space. And one of the best places to learn that wasn't the entertainment and, and TV industry I was from. It was actually the digital and advertising space. So I knew nothing about advertising, nothing about the creative work. I just was eager to learn uh, at 28 because I felt that mm. that space, the digital social media space, was going to take over the world. And I wanted to be part of that wave. Like, who does that? <laughs> I put you in a, my presentation yesterday when I was talking about the importance of range and getting like diverse influences and then bringing that to bear on a creative challenge that people are working on because a lot of people would have thought that was crazy you know you 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 build your career you know you have really good earning potential within a particular company doing really really well and then you decide to quit start somewhere else as a junior intern you know nothing and then start to build your career again I'm sure a lot of your friends and family thought that was absolutely crazy but it actually turned out to be the best thing for your career and for dare win because you were able to combine the skills of you know storytelling video production with digital and this emerging field and that made you really very valuable what was it in you that gave you the confidence to be able to do that because most people wouldn't be able to take that kind of pay cut after having built up so much equity within the agency that they were working in initially? I think there are many answers to that question. Uh, first of all, I'm a risk taker. I come from a family of risk takers. Uh, my mother is uh, from Nigeria, so I grew up in a predominantly white environment in France, but like deeply rooted into the Nigerian culture. And I think when you come from a third world country, you are deeply driven and you have a sense of hustle. And you bring to the table a sense of hustle that, okay, I know what it takes to make it, and that means I'm going to be able to sacrifice things at some point of, of time because I know that if I sacrifice something now, in the long term, it's going to pay off. Mm. So I had I grew up like seeing my mother, a single mother, hustling around, like opening small businesses, trying this, getting involved into like football. She became a football agent, and she knew nothing about football. So Amazing. <laughs> when you grew up in that type of environment, you understand that if you want to if you want to make it big. You need to take big risks and big bets. And interrupting your career with a really great potential to start all over, that's a huge risk. But I figured out that taking a risk and understanding this new wave of communication, this new era of business that was digital, was going to be a key asset for me and for the rest of my life. I felt that at the age of 28, if I didn't understand digital, 10 years later, I'll be completely useless. Hmm. And that I understood when I started seeing the interaction between users and social media. And I was like, this is a space that's going to take over all industry. This is a space that's going to disrupt all industries. And I need to understand it. I need to master it. So I think diversity and innovation comes when you bring in different point of views. And as a TV executive, getting into the advertising agency allowed me to bring a different perspective, a different point of view, different set of skills, different network. 
And I got into a company that valued that. Hmm. And that's one of the things that I kept from that experience, that bringing in people who don't, don't fit the exact this job description that you have, but that add to your company and to the culture is a great way of generating uh, more value to your company and to your project. And also a huge part of your background as well is is your traveling experience, right? Like when you told me that you've traveled the world, I was thinking, oh yeah, he's, he's gone to a few countries. You've literally gone to pretty much every country in the world. Like you've traveled to India, Nepal, Burma, Singapore, Bolivia, Mexico, New York, Paris, South Africa, Nigeria. You took a year out and I think just traveled the globe. What impact did that traveling have on your perspective and the way that you understand media culture and actually human beings it had a huge impact i actually took a year and a half off um because i wanted to understand the world i was living in i was a uh, back then i was probably 24 and i felt like it would be a waste uh, not to actually explore the world as a, as a younger man uh, mixed of Nigerian and French heritage. So I traveled around the world and that built up my self-confidence like no other experience before. I traveled by myself as a black man, <laughs> spent six months in Asia, six months in Latin America, six months in, in Spain and Germany. And when you travel by yourself, when you go through all the struggles that you can imagine uh, you have while traveling, you then realize that you're capable of doing pretty much anything. Nothing could stop me. Uh, I had challenges, I had transport challenges, I faced racism, I ran out of money. All of those great things were actually adventures that made me super, super, super self-confident. That's the first point. And the second point is that I now had a clear understanding of how different cultures can collaborate. Mm. Like getting spending time in country, you don't speak the language getting around, working sometimes in some of this country, I got to understand how different, but also how similar people around the world are and how it is a skill to actually be culturally fluid and fluent between different cultures. And that's something I, I kept. And I now love working on global projects with global clients and global teams. And that's also one of the reasons why I, I joined Media Monk, that's a, a global company. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about Darewin before we talk about Media Monk. So you set up Darewin in 2011. You got clients like Netflix and Spotify, as we mentioned at the top of the show. So from 2011 to where we are today in 2021, tell us how the company grew and talk about the most significant milestones along the way. Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm the sole founder and, and owner of the company. And I think thanks to my travel experience by myself, I realized I could go on another journey by myself. A lot of people look for partners, have business ideas, but spend like years and months looking for the ideal partner. I didn't need to do that because I had the confidence that I could, I could do things on my own because I had traveled so, so much by myself. So when I started the company in uh, 2011, I did something that most people don't do. I left without knowing who my first client was going to be. Business advice a lot of people give you is like, okay, if you do start a company, you better know who your first client is going to be. Sure. I didn't. <laughs> so all I had were business cards a name of an agency, Darwin, and an ambition. So what I did uh, as a young entrepreneur was like, okay, I want to spend my time working on things I'm passionate about. And what I've always been passionate about uh, since my university years were, was entertainment. So I was like, I want to work on the most interesting IP and on the most interesting property there is in French entertainment at the moment. I don't want to start from the bottom. 
I'm going to be ambitious from day one. So that means I'm going to have a name of a company that's international, that doesn't sound French, because I want to be exposed to the rest of the world. I'm a global profile. I want people all around the world to hear about me and to be able to pronounce the name of my company. Mm. So the name of the company is going to be international. The website, even if it was a, a shitty website, is going to be both in French and English, because I want people to see the work we produce, wherever, whatever language they speak. So that was my vision from day one, being global. And I knew I was going to be global if I could work on the best properties in France and internationally. So um, proactively, I went to one of the networks and clients I had worked with previously, that's Canal+, Plus, that was, that's the equivalent of HBO. So it's a pay TV channel that had just launched um, a new uh, TV content show called Bref, and it was the hottest show on air. Mm. And I was like, this show is super hot. It's targeted millennials, so people are under 25. But you're not using social media and you're not using digital space to resonate and generate more revenue, you should. This is 2011. You should be doing that. Mm. So I proactively came up with a deck of uh, half a dozen ideas, reached out to them like, guys, I have these ideas. I've been working on this. You, you might be interested. Luckily enough, I had worked with that network in my previous life. So they knew that I was serious. Mm. And then they accepted to actually uh, uh, set up a meeting with the producers of the show, the writers of the show, and, and the TV uh, digital departments. I presented the ideas, and they loved it. 15 days later, two weeks later, they told me, okay, can you produce this campaign? Uh, can you produce the first campaign? I was like, sure, I can. But I hadn't opened a bank account. <laughs> I didn't have money to pay upfront the development. Right. So I pretty much had to lie my way into getting this new piece of business. Sure, I can do this. Sure, I have a team ready. Uh, but the only thing, like, I need the money upfront. And they were like, okay, sure, we'll give you the money upfront. We don't right. usually give the money upfront, but right. we'll give you the money upfront. Who do we transfer the money to? I was like, uh, I don't have a bank account yet. I need to set up a bank account. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's kind of a make a fake it till you make it mentality that yeah, I was yeah. telling you about hustling and and selling uh, your passion and your, your enthusiasm, even if you don't have all the means to make the project happen. Two weeks later, the first project was on air, and we won an award, and it was a huge success. And I had a, a, a retainer project, a retainer a contract with them for the following uh, six uh, months. Amazing. So those campaigns just put me on the map. We immediately won awards. I immediately communicated from a PR point of view. And crazy enough, people just started applying to a company. There was a one man. I didn't have an office. I was in my house. I didn't have a desk. <laughs> so I was working on an iron board, using it as my table. So uh, funny enough, that iron board is now at the agency. It's kind of my, my, <laughs> my, uh, my lucky charm item. Right. So I take it everywhere uh, I go. I, I make sure that that first desk follows me around. So that was it. And I uh, people it. started applying like, okay, this is a really cool agency. And I was like, this is not an agency. This is one guy in his underwears, on his ironing board, working his ass off. So that was like, love it. so that was really the first, um, the first uh, milestone of the company. 2011, 15 days after starting the company, landing of his clients, award-winning work that on the hottest property in France. So it was all about ambition. Great story. And now you're roughly around 108 people. So talk us through the other major milestones to get to where you are today. Sure. I think we, we did other campaigns in the following years, uh, the next two years, that won awards. So award-winning work was really key to us because we would apply to international awards always because I wanted international clients to find out about us, small agents in Paris. Because of those uh, international awards so we won, I got the attention of a couple of clients, including 
um, a German client uh, called the Unity Media that asked us to produce uh, German pilots. I had no German teams. I just knew social media and entertainment very well, and we won the pitch. Hmm. So I had to build in a month a full German team from Paris, <laughs> which is crazy. So that's something we did for the for the three years, and that yet again gave me the confidence. Okay, so we can do this. Yeah, we can do this. It turns out that I learned German in school, so I had a bit of German connections, mm -hmm. but I knew no one in Germany. And in in a month, we built a team, and those people are now working at Amazon Prime Video. Amazing. So amazing. That's ex international experience and award-winning work. A year later, got us to get an email from Eric Palota at Netflix.com. So. April 2014, I get an email from eric.palota at netflix.com. That's the social media global lead that's looking for an agency to pitch in France. That was a turning point of the agency. Hmm. Why? Because we won that pitch against way larger agency that wanted to, to run the Netflix accounts. And we've been working with Netflix for the last seven years now. So we're now in season seven of the collaboration between Darwin and Netflix. And we actually helped Netflix launch in France. And we've been working on the social marketing campaign for the last seven years. That has had a huge impact on the industry, a huge impact on the company, a huge impact on myself. And we've structured the company around entertainment, digital, uh, very um, creative work. And I think Netflix is one of the clients that illustrates that the most. I've got a million questions. So my first one really is, it seems as though you've got a tremendous conversion rate. It seems as though whatever opportunity that comes up, you're able to convert. You you have this ability for people to believe in you, believe in your ideas, even when you don't have the infrastructure behind you to support it. So you're a visionary salesperson and you're very good at sort of selling the vision. What makes people believe in you, do you think? What contributed to those amazing wins at such a young point in your career without the infrastructure behind you or even maybe even the case studies of other larger agencies with bigger client wins what enabled you to win those prestigious accounts do you think passion first of all i'm really passionate about what i do and i think that transpires in this interview i hope this transpires in my business meetings this transpires in the interview i do when i'm hiring people. I'm passionate about what I do. I don't lie. I'm pretty candid about everything I say that I do. And I think I'm very ambitious for myself, for the company, and for the work I, I put in. And I think once people feel that you're passionate, then you're highly engaged with their brand, their projects. That is not only their project, but it becomes our project. They feel a special connection. And back to the point that we mentioned earlier, the fact that I had a, a level of expertise in entertainment and a high level of expertise in digital and social media was a rare combination. Hmm. So someone that's passionate, has a couple of credentials, has great ideas, and has, is ready to put in the hard work, I think is a combination that is quite rare on the market. So I think those are the things that really helped me uh, grow. And from a creative point of view, because what we sell is ideas from a creative, creative point of view, I didn't come from the industry. I just wanted to uh, disrupt that industry. I wanted to bring in a different type of view, different type of creative, different type of talents. And I, I think that's something we managed to do and that I conveyed to my talents and to my 40 people back then. 
that they were able to convert into into amazing ideas and projects. Hmm. And and what have you learned over the years about what it takes to make tremendous social digital and ad campaigns successful? Humility. <laughs> it does take humility because you keep on learning and learning and learning and making mistakes. I started off in a world where there was just Facebook and Twitter. Now it's Twitch, Instagram, uh, TikTok. So I keep on learning and I keep on being humble about how much I know and how much I don't know. So I don't have a recipe. I think the moment you do have a recipe, you're dead. Mm. Because that means you, you, you become like an industrial factory and not a creative shop anymore. And what I'm trying to build is something creative that stands out. The goal is to stand out and to create content that's relevant to the user, but that's also going to have an element of surprise to it. So it has to be insightful, has to be creative, it has to be also very simple. Complex ideas are easy to to ideate, but they don't work. I think making sure that your ideas can actually connect someone that's eight years old to someone who's eight years old is very important to me. And I think genius is simplicity. I couldn't agree more. And those principles, are those the same principles that you used in the early days of building Darewin that you're still using now? Like what has changed in what counts as effective content for brands from the early days of 2011 to kind of what, where we are today in 2021? I think the level of knowledge you need now is different. Like you could master like two social media platforms in 2011. Now I do think that it's quite tricky to find someone who's got an incredible talent, both on TikTok and on Twitter and on Instagram and on YouTube. I think that's that's uh, that's uh, not very realistic. So I think there's been a such an intense level of creative coming from the users itself that we need to adapt constantly. So the guiding principles are the same, like stand out, innovate, be creative, and connect to the users on an emotional point of view. But the way we convey it is different. I think brand, the world and brands, uh, what consumers expect and what brands expect has changed. We can talk about brand purpose and, and inclusion and diversity, but those are topics that, to me, were not really on my on my radar 10 years ago. I'm going to be very honest about it. They were not on my radar 10 years ago. I grew into those complex challenges, and they're now part of my daily life, and I'm really involved in those topics, but I just keep on adapting to the world as it changes and evolves. A huge part of that creativity that you're talking about comes from resourcing the team right bringing the right skills and behaviors into the team in order to sort of maintain that level of creativity i mean agency businesses are people businesses how do you think about how to attract and retain great creative talent where do you find them do you create build your own do you hire from other competing agencies like what have you learned about how to attract the best agency talent it's one of the hardest things. Finding the right talents is the hardest thing because a right and incredible talent at a competitor might not be a great for fit, a great ad to your, to your company. So I spend and my team spend a huge amount of time searching for talents. The, the moment we see a piece of work, whether it's agency work or just individual work pop out and that we find is interesting, we reach out to that person. So we're on a permanent search for talents. That's it. You need to have your radars open at every single second, whether you're like a, 
uh, at a cafe and you're having a discussion with someone that tells you about a new trend, whether you're at a party, whether you're online doing some research, I want to make sure that whenever there's a potential talent that pops out, I want to be aware of it. I want my teams to be aware of it. So we spend most of the time digging and searching rather than reading, reading resumes. Hmm. Or when we do read resumes, we consider that we want to hire the people who, are, who do stand out in the job application. Because I don't think that many people put the efforts of applying in an original, in an innovative or distinctive way. And our job is to make brands stand out. And I think that's something uh, job applicants should apply to themselves, and which they don't often do. And when you do find someone that ticks that box that you're really excited about, what's your process for bringing them into the team? Uh, so it's my, my HR, my talent acquisition team works on that. We have a lot of different things. We've done uh, day trials because I think it's as much as we want to hire the person as it is the person wants to join us. It's a two-way thing. Mm. So we've done like a day trial. You, you want to know what the company is like? I can, I'm a great pitch person. I can tell you what the company is. I can tell you my vision. I can make you excited, but the reality of it might be different, might differ. Sure, the sure. best way for you to actually experience the company is to actually come in and just work, spend a day with the people and work with us on a project. Mm. So just a one-day freelance or one-day interview process. And then at the end of the day, you tell us, do you like the people? Do you like the culture? Does it match to what we've told you? And if it does, are you interested? If you're not, well, happy to meet you. So those kind of very um, real experiences to us is a great way to actually see the people you're going to work with. Are they, is there diversity within the team? Are, are the people happy to be here? Are the people burnt out? Uh, is, the, is the atmosphere of the company good? Is everyone afraid? Uh, is, uh, is, are the communications easy? That's, those are things that you don't really know before you join the company. And I think it's actually crazy to quit your job without experience, experiencing the new company you want to join. It's crazy. Whereas if you're offered to actually spend the day there, you can. So that's one, of the, that's one of the key points. Recommendation to me is key. I think the process of interviewing people or testing people is, is flawed. I think I value more recommendation from someone who spends six months, a year, two years working with the talent right. than a one-hour interview with me because I'm going to get a point of view out of an hour conversation. That's very little compared to someone who's got two years of experience with the talent. So I value recommendation above all. Hmm. Plus the fact that I believe that depending on your personality, not everyone is like an extrovert. Some of the best talent in the industry might be introverts. And then don't necessarily perform well in interviews conducted in a standard way. Sure. So I've had the cases of people who were some of the best talents that had terrible interviews, but amazing recommendation. What do you pick? In general, people are going to pick the interview, the interview elements because they're like, yeah, this interview wasn't great. I don't care that much about the interview if I've got amazing recommendation. And another piece of advice I can give is what I've learned over the years is two things. Employee or talent engagement is way more important to me than experience. Okay. Having someone that has less talent or less experience, but that's going to be fully engaged and willing to learn fast is way more valuable to me than someone with experience that's not going to put that level of engagement in the company. How do you test for that though? I don't, one of the things like, when you hire someone that's not the exact profile that you're looking for, you're offering that person a level of trust that's unprecedented. And you're building a bond that's more lasting than, 
okay, I'm looking for an account person. Let me hire the account person from the sister company or from the competitor company. Mm. Like he doesn't really need you. You haven't done anything specific for, for them except give them more money. If you bring in someone that doesn't perfectly match but that, that you feel could be a great addition to the company, that could feel could learn the job and do it, he's going to owe you. And the way he's going to repay you is by, by, getting, by being engaged yeah. with the company, by yeah. staying longer, by being an example of what diversity and inclusion is. It's bringing people who don't necessarily fit, but that, that can learn. Mm. And to, that's exactly my profile. I didn't fit in the ad world. I had to learn from scratch. Mm. And after spending a year in an advertising agency, I built an agency that's now 130 people strong, part of mm. the media monks. Absolutely love it. So, so giving people the opportunity and then they will repay you for that face that you've shown in them by extra effort, dedication, working harder. I totally agree. And also, as you said before, people have the ability to learn anything. As long as you give them the opportunity, they will repay you with that faith. Exactly. And that's the way I repaid the ad agency that trained me. And that's the way I expect people to repay me when I hire them. So funny enough, like 60% of my uh, senior leadership team doesn't come from the ad world. Didn't have previous ad experience before joining us. And they're now part of the leadership team. Love it. So how would you describe what the culture is of, of Darewin? And from your previous agency experience, what have you taken away that you've used to build the culture of Darewin? And what have you left behind? Because some agencies are different <laughs> sure but to, to be honest my like i said my my sting at the previous agency was super short 11 months so i learned a lot on the job then i left what was the largest influence on the culture i built for Darwin was not an agency was a tech company i was lucky enough to go to los ghettos which is the headquarters of netflix in 2015 so we had a, like a, an, an immersion week in the netflix uh, campus headquarters Amazing. and I had, well, I guess you, you you probably know and your listeners probably know, but Netflix is one of the tech companies that has structured, designed their culture in a, in a very open way. And there's even a PDF that's, that's online that you can actually read about the values of, of Netflix. And when I when I went there, I was I was kind of skeptical, to be honest. I was like, this is a tech company. This is some American BS. Like they're telling us these are the values, but it's just a piece right. of paper. It's marketing. Exactly. So I basically spent a week trying to find holes and <laughs> gaps in what they were trying to tell us. Aha. Very French. Yeah, very French of me. Right. <laughs> and I realized that it was actually quite thick. Like, it was real. And we were maybe 40 people back then in Darwin. I was like, okay, if this 10,000 people company can have this authentic culture and, and tells us that the success is based on the culture, I need to design this culture of my company. Next month, I had a two-week holidays, so I went to Northern Africa with my wife, and I spent basically two weeks working on the culture of the agency and writing it down, making sure it was in writing and that people could understand it and know what I expected from them and what the company was expecting from them. So the way I designed the culture was about around the name Darwin, so D-A-R-E-V-V-I-N, so W became double V, which is about mm -hmm. uh, quality, uh, uh, adaptation, respect, entrepreneurship, Vision, visible innovation, and entertainment. So, all the letters from the from the word Darwin turn into values for the company. So it's easy to remember, and it actually says who we are, what we expect, and what I've learned 
the, the cultural deck that I created, which is called the Darwin Code of Values, is actually a mix of what I strongly believe in and what I learned on the job that I want to share with the people who join in. So after 10 years of experience, if you join us as an intern, I give you, I hand you on day one, everything I've learned. <laughs> because I feel like if I want you to succeed, whatever your position, I need to transfer to you as much knowledge as I can. And I've put all of that in a little book with all the values and I hand it to everyone for free on day one. Love it. Because I don't think many companies tell you what they expect from you on day one. You have a job description, but they don't tell you how to operate, how to navigate, what success is within the company. I've tried to do, make that happen as uh, early as uh, 2014. And then there's one thing actually giving people that book, you know, from day one and saying, look, this is the these are the standards that we expect. There's another thing about reinforcing that on a regular basis because people forget, <laughs> um, you know, people have short memories. How are you reinforcing those values, that purpose, that way of operating on a regular basis so that it becomes ingrained in the way that people operate? It's interesting because I'm not the only one reinforcing it now. Right. All the team members reinforce it. So we've got a, a set of eight values. Some people are more comfortable with the first one or the second one or the third one. So everyone kind of uh, be, takes ownership of one of the values and pushes it forward. So first of first thing is like, I lead by example. I live by those values. I think senior leadership needs to lead by example. They need to be in sync with the values of the company. The moment there's a discrepancy between what you say you believe in and what you do, people stop believing immediately. So that's the first thing. On a daily basis, you need to make sure that your behavior, your decisions, uh, and, and your work process reflects what you strongly believe in. So to me, that's, that's one thing. And then I would say every four to six months, we have a session where we, we present again the Darwin Code to everyone. And to be very honest, when I prepare those sessions, I, I learn, I relearn things. I'm like, ah, I had forgotten about this. This is key. Or this makes more sense in the light of what we're experiencing now. Interesting. So you say people have a short memory. I wrote the book <laughs> and I still learn from it on a regular right. basis. Yeah. To yeah. be honest. Love that. When building the company in the early days, what were the most important metrics for you to focus on and prioritize that you're still focusing on today? Um, by revenue, obviously. Uh, revenue was key. Salaries were key. I would say those were the, the two metrics I was looking at. Because I think I was early stage, so we were growing. We had like exponential growth. So it was uh, things were, were quite easy. I think now I've matured, and especially since I've restructured the company. So the financial department, the KPI, the business department were structured like four years ago, which is quite late, I would say. We were strongly focused on creative and production, and the rest like followed a, a bit later. But now what I follow is obviously a uh, gross margin, the size of the pipeline, the cash flow, because you've got millions of euro in, in, in salaries per month. But what I also started measuring like uh, two years ago is like gender balance, hmm. uh, diversity within the team. So that's not legal in France. I don't know if you're familiar with, the, with those uh, rules, no. but you're not allowed to measure uh, diversity in France for some very strange hmm. reason. But I measure it because I, I do feel that if... There is a diversity issue we want to solve and fix. Sure. We need to measure it. There's nothing you can fix without measuring it. So sure. those are the things that I, I, I now work on. And that's key to me. Because what I've learned, which is, is, is very interesting, that coming back to hiring, 
I don't believe anymore that the best team or the best agency is just a place with the best talents. I don't think gathering all the talents the way the Avengers do it with a super <laughs> with a super team of superhero is going to yeah. produce the greatest work. I right. think you need to build an environment where people actually feel safe to be creative, to be innovative, to speak their mind. And I think those are the teams that actually become the best teams. Coming back to the culture. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm a fan of I'm a fan of football. I don't think putting all best eleven players on the on the pitch at every single position is going to create the best team. I don't think so. I've seen it with the French national team. Exactly. Many times. French national team, uh, Real Madrid with the Galactics, PSG at the moment with Neymar, Messi, and Mbappe. I don't think. I think it's an error to actually try and build a team just out of the best talent ever. You need to create a culture. That's safe. You need to to, to provide uh, a safe space, a safe haven where you can actually grow talent, when you can actually retain talent, when you, when you can actually trust people to do great work. And there's a there's an incredible um, survey that was done by Google a couple of years ago called Rework with Google, where they they share the details of a two year study where they um, interviewed 200 of their top uh, performing teams and gave the five rules that they discovered were the key to a successful team. And it has nothing to do with the individual, individual talent. Mm. You, should, you should really, if you can, you should really check it out. It's um, uh, psychological safety. Can you take risk within that team without feeling insecure? That's key. And it has nothing to do with the quality of the talent. It's more about the mindset of the team. Is the structure super clear? Is the work meaningful? Do we have impact? And can we count on each other? That's, mm. Those are the five rules to create the best teams ever. It has nothing to do with individual talent. Nothing to do with educational statement or what university you went to or how smart you are or your IQ score. Nope. Fascinating. Really interesting. Love that. So let's talk a little bit about Media Monk. So you said in, in, in 2020, you you merged with Sir Martin Sorrell's Media Monk's absolutely fantastic agency. Why did it make sense for you guys to join forces? Uh, what's the strategic output out of this? Talk us through that. Sure. So it had been 10 years since I built Darwin, and I felt that I was uh, hitting a plateau, like a glass ceiling, kind of. We were not on the biggest pitches. Uh, we had a really, really good growth and strong growth and still a lot of growth potential. But I felt, as an entrepreneur, that I wanted something even more challenging. And... Because I'm always monitoring what's happening in the industry, I had seen that Media Monks had built an agency offering that was about content, media, and data. That uh, holy trinity, as we call it, was going to be their offering to the market for the years 2020 to 2030. And as I saw that, I felt that that was the right offering for the market. Was Darwin going to be able to provide that same level of offering to the market? Content, absolutely, a stunning content, media and data was going to take me a lot of time, a lot of energy and a lot of money to invest in those fields. They are super competitive. Mm. So I felt that if I couldn't beat them, I should join them. Sure. Very simple point of view. And I felt that joining Media Monks as Media Monks Paris was the best way for talent in the company, for clients, for myself to keep growing at a high space. And funny enough, after merging with Media Monks, our revenue grew by 45%, and the size of the team staff went from 70 to 130 in a year. 
So let's talk about from a client perspective then, what are the challenges that clients are talking to you about today in 2021 that are different to a few years before? Now that you've merged with Media Monks, what are the briefs that are coming across your desk and how has the world of the CMO of the marketing decision maker changed? Give us some light on what the challenges are of the clients that you're working with today. I think there are two types of clients that we work with today. We have tech clients that are like already fully digital and they want us to work full funnel around the customer journey from end to another. And that's something we can now provide with the content, the data and the media side. So that's something that we're doing, for example, for BMW and Mini and the Mini brand in France. So that's something that's uh, key. And on the other side, I would say you have brands who are switching to the digital world at the pace of COVID. So brand that realized that in terms of distribution, in terms of products, in terms of communication, they were not adapting to the behaviors and they need to switch. So that's where come our consultant arms comes in. And we actually help via our consultants, those brands rethink their working process, rethink the funnel, rethink the product, rethink the communications. And those are the two types of, pro- of um, products and challenges I would say CMOs are facing. How do I move fast into the digital world where I already am? Or how do I jump onto the digital train that I haven't uh, bothered yet? Hmm, really fascinating. And are you finding that, I guess, from a, a business building point of view, what, what have you learned specifically that, I guess, in the beginning you were no good at, that today in 2021 are now strengths and muscles that you've built over that sort of 10-year period. Talk about some of the biggest areas of growth for you personally over the last 10, 12 years. Mm, that's, a, that's a great question. The areas of growth in the last 10 years, I would say the importance of uh, leadership. I think I have made a lot of uh, leadership mistakes when it, come, when it came to myself investing uh, in me because as a leader of a company the best investment I can make is invest on me so I can take better decisions and that's something I think I started doing quite late so I now have a coach I now uh, study more I read more books which is things that don't directly impact the business but that impact the business in the long term and those are things that I was so busy growing the business on a day-to-day level that I didn't invest enough in me i think that's one 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 part and two i think that i've also realized that you learn so much in doing and that the execution part of the business is the place where you actually figure out things so we're a creative agency so the idea is key and super central but i do think that without a great execution uh the idea itself doesn't work it doesn't really matter so Making sure that if you do have a doubt, you actually try and prototype, try and do things, try and push things forward, even if you fail, is one of the things I've realized. Rather than trying to have a, a blueprint that's perfect, it's better to have like a, a big idea of where you're going and to move forward and to adapt as you go. And that's, I think, a change that I've, uh, I've made over the, over the years. Just in terms of what the future looks like, what do you think the most effective chapter looks like in the business? To me, um, there are two areas I would say that I want to focus on. And I think are going to be the areas where you have the most growth possibly for a company like ours. First of all is the, the mix 
and the, the offering of combined media data and content, like I put it. For now, Darwin, we're really strong in content, but we have to learn how to operate and optimize that content from a media and a data point of view. Sure. And the other area I think is, is going to be key is uh, how you talk to a more diverse audience and crowd. So how you integrate both uh, diversity in your teams and in your communication, but also brand purpose. I mean, we're facing, this is the 21st century, where we're facing incredible challenges, whether it's like a global warming, wars, migration, massive migrations, uh, and a pan- in the middle of a pandemic. Hmm. Finding the right place for brands when we have like those huge challenges to face as humanity is going to be key. And how do you think about capital allocation as the leader of, of Darewin? How do you think about where to invest, where to spend, what you're focusing on from a capital allocation point of view? My expertise, I think, would be in three sectors. Talent, talent, talent. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Back to the first point. I think we're talent-driven industry. Even if we're becoming more and more tech, tech is, dri- is driven by talent. Growth and ideas are driven by talent. Clients' relationships are driven by talent. So it all boils down to the, the level of talent that you have. Hmm. Absolutely love it. Wale, we're running out of time. Let's get into everyone's favorite questions now. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. This is my favorite part of the show, personally, because we get to learn about you, the person behind the brand. Tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. I had an amazing opportunity in 2015 to open another country. So we set shop in Germany. We had Netflix give us the business for Germany. We had German clients, like I said, in 2014 that we had landed. And we had, and I thought there were opportunities for an agency like ours to open a German office. We did. So we started off immediately with maybe 12 to 15 talents. And, and the company was growing. Paris was growing. I was leading all of that. And at some point, I decided to hire uh, a leader for Germany because I couldn't manage both at the same time and the cultural differences were so large that I needed someone from uh, with a German culture. Unfortunately, the person I hired was not good enough and I didn't fire that person fast enough. So realizing that you make a mistake uh, and correcting that mistake fast is key because I didn't and the company failed. I had to fire the 12 employees in uh, after 18 months. And you should have done it sooner. How would you, if that happens again, how would you know at what point you should pull the trigger and, and make that decision? Uh, I'm going to say something that's, that's going to be not super logical. I think it's a gut feeling. Mm-hmm. As an entrepreneur, you know, most, we can say that most of our decisions are, are thoroughly thought. I, I would admit, and I think any entrepreneur, entrepreneur can admit, that there is an element of gut feeling. Like your gut is your second brain, like a... Like, sure. like we said, so there is a point where you know that this is not working out. Yeah. But you need the courage, you need the energy, you need the time, and you need the money to invest in someone greater. And at that point of time, I wasn't brave enough to, take, to make that decision, to pull the trigger and to say, you know what, I don't have a solution yet, but this is not working, let me stop. And maybe I should have promoted someone from within the team. Maybe I should have hired someone that was twice as expensive as the person I had hired, but I didn't. And after six months, Everyone quits, we lost the businesses, and I closed the, the, the German office. Mm, interesting. Lessons to live by. 
Tell us about some of your early mentors who influenced your approach to brand building, agency building, sort of content, media, data. Tell us about some of your early mentors. Sure. Like I said, I was hugely influenced by uh, Netflix and their approach to marketing. So like 2014, uh, Reed Hastings and his marketing team were, I think, the, the, the benchmark for me to how you could build a brand on a global level. Using social, using conversation, having a huge impact and being part of people's life. I think that's what Netflix has succeeded in is doing it. Like it's a brand that's part of people's life and people's conversation. I think sure. that's why people love it, even if you have uh, price surges. Um, so I, I would say that was the largest influence. But at the same time, I spent I spent so much time um, listening to podcasts, reading books, and uh, I set up um, a mentor, a board of mentors in 2016 with with the uh, with the people and talents that were roughly 10 years older than me and that were really strong where I wasn't. So mm-hmm. I'm not a finance guy. So I brought in on board a guy that had uh, started a, an agency that he later sold to publicists that had a finance profile. I wasn't that strong in data. So I brought in someone from Jellyfish that, that would become later Jellyfish. Um, I brought in an entrepreneur that had created and failed that I felt like there was a lot of things to learn from him and someone that had a great um, networking entertainment. And those four um, mentors, actually, I saw them quarterly, did a presentation to them quarterly about the goals, the figures, and the challenges, and they, were, they really helped me out a lot. And that came in free. And to me, that's one of, probably one of the best advice I can give to young entrepreneurs or to entrepreneurs uh, altogether is like, there are people out there willing to give you free advice. There are people willing to share the knowledge, to share the successes and their failures, and it would be a mistake not to take advantage of that. Mm, absolutely love it. Okay. Tell us about some of your favorite books. You mentioned books earlier and podcasts, but let's talk about books first. Books. Um, I'm an entrepreneur and I I probably worked, uh, I still do sometimes like 40 to 60 hours a week, maybe even sometimes more. But one of the books I've, I've read that actually changed my mindset was a Tim Ferriss' uh, four-hour week. Okay. Uh, because it's it's about how you can optimize uh, your revenue, how you can optimize the way you work, how you can have more impact with less time. I'm lazy, but I work my ass off <laughs> because I want to. Because I'm uh, ambitious. Most entrepreneurs are, <laughs> to be fair. We, anything we can do to cut down on work, we do. Yeah, you true. can cut down for like eighty hours to seventy. That's that's yeah, great already. But it makes sense. Still, is seventy. So that book is about how you can generate revenue. Uh, just in four hours per week, and it's super smart. I'm trying to get there. I'm not definitely not there, but it's something that I think <laughs> is, is interesting. Love it. Give us one more. Uh, I'll give you one more. Yeah, Managing Transition by William Bridges. Okay, it's really a really interesting book about how you have to realize that companies keep on changing over time, and how you manage teams and the company culture and the company product in an environment that's always changing. And now more than ever. Tell us about a podcast that you listen to. Obviously, you listen to Agency Deal Masters on a regular basis. Absolutely. As I'm, as I'm sure you do. What What other podcasts aside from ours do you listen to? I there's a, if I can recommend, it has nothing to do with the business, but I wait, which one am I going to recommend? Uh, I listen to mostly French podcasts. So um, it's interesting enough. I, I listen to podcasts when I'm preparing a pitch, when I'm preparing a meeting. But uh, the podcast I'm listening to the most of the moment are about gender equality. Um, I think that's one of the largest challenges we have. Uh, and my understanding of 
of life as a as a woman is very poor. It's been very poor poor for the past thirty five years. And I'm now listening to one more um, female voices to understand what the experience is as a woman. Something I discovered, which is super interesting to me, is that the largest minority in the world is women, and women represent fifty two percent of the humanity. So you can be a majority of the people on the planet, but still be a minority. And I think that's a minority that needs to be listened to a, a lot. Mm. Uh, last couple of questions and then I'll let you go. What advice would you give to a young person or millennial who wants to start their career in an advertising content and digital media agency? I would say to stand out. I don't think a lot of people, like I said earlier, put in the effort to stand out. So if you want to work in a content agency, just create content tailored for the company and apply. And obviously, there's so much resources online uh, that I would say if you do have free time and you're looking for a job, you can do like an, uh, an online uh, Cambridge course of digital marketing. You can do, watch uh, YouTube videos and learn way more online nowadays that I probably learned in school uh, 20 years back. Couldn't agree more. And my final question, Wale, I'm going to have to get you back on the show because we've only like scratched the surface. But what do you know about growing an agency today that you wish you knew back in 2011? I'm going to say this straight up. I think I can be, I could have been as successful with a better life-work balance. How? Uh, because I think that's, that's sometimes that extra hour uh, from 2 to 3 p.m. or from midnight to 1 o'clock is not really necessary. Sometimes when you're tired, you just need to stop. Mm. And uh, I am really uh, very high demanding and I want quality work. But I do think that you need to know when you reach that stage where the extra work you're putting in is not uh, bringing you anywhere. It's not adding any value. Knowing where your threshold is, I think is key. That's a great place to end. Wale, thank you so much for doing this. Nathan, thanks for your time. We have been speaking with Wale Badmosi Oyinkami. He is currently the founder and CEO of Darewin. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever great podcasts are found and listen to the over 140 episodes we've had with world-class agency leaders. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at Nathan at agencydealmasters.com. Please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. We would be unable to do this show without our very own deal masters. Tyler Baller is our booker slash editor. Christoph Boaszczek is our producer. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Deal Masters. <laughs>